Reality television shows draw in their audience with the promise of authentic coverage of incredible situations. Viewers tune in to see hilarious and shocking things happening on the screen, with the producers hoping you'll spread the word about the show to your friends, saying you can't make this stuff up. Except they do, they do make it, make it up. Whether it's American Idol or Real Housewives, The Biggest Loser, or even Pawn Stars, the casting, the scenes, the situations, the conversations are all regularly manipulated in such a way as to generate the most dramedy possible. On Cupcake Wars, contestants have been told beforehand what their mystery ingredient will be so they can plan, and they're instructed to act surprised on film. On Duck Dynasty, extra bleeps are added in to make it seem like the family is cursing at each other more than they actually are. On House Hunters, there's no deliberation. The decision has already been made on which property to buy well before the cameras start rolling. In many cases, they're already through escrow. As Theophilus turned the page from what we call Acts chapter 11 to Acts chapter 12, he must have been astounded. Things more hilarious and shocking than any we see on reality television play out in rapid succession in these verses. But it was all true. It all actually happened. But it wasn't just fun and games. After reading about amazing triumphs in Jerusalem and Samaria and Syria and beyond, after seeing sorcerers brought down, eunuchs lifted up, centurions brought in, after seeing the world's greatest enemy of Christ become a church leader and power going out all over the empire, suddenly we see that empire strike back in a big way. In the midst of all the great work of God, the church endures some heavy and painful blows that would have come uh, as a huge surprise to all concerned. What was Theophilus to think? What was the church to think? What conclusions might they come to in light of the major developments that take place in this chapter? Tonight we can discover with them some of the realities at work in this church age and find hope in our own troubled times. We begin in verse 1 and we read, About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church. We begin with the phrase, about that time. Our memories are sometimes short, so what had been going on? Well, it was a time when the gospel was going out to the Gentile world with remarkable success in some places. It was around the time when Paul and Barnabas were in the area. In fact, it's possible they were maybe even in Jerusalem at the time. We know how Paul loved to be uh, in Jerusalem during the Passover and the feast times. They had come from Syria back to Judea to bring relief from the church to, in Antioch because it was also a time of severe famine in the region and the Christians there in the Judean region were in great need. So on top of real economic stress and hunger, they're now facing violent persecution from the government. Uh, whenever we read or study this section, the headlines are always about James and Peter, right? That's the, the jump out in this story. But we should pause to note what it says here in verse 1. It wasn't only apostles who suffered in these verses. There were multiple victims of the tyrant's crimes, multiple church members who were uh, being subjected to these terrible things. Verse 2 says, and he executed James, John's brother, with a sword. It's hard to imagine how much a shock this would have been. On the one hand, the apostles knew that their love for Jesus would bring them trials and tribulations in this world. But we're at about 44 AD here. We're not that far removed from the resurrection. And here we have James, one of the 12, one of the three in the inner circle of Jesus, one of the very first disciples called to follow him, suddenly taken away. And Luke writes it in such a blunt, matter-of-fact way. 
He gives us no final words, no closing sermon recorded by the doctor, no last minute rescue. How could such a thing happen? There have been a few movies that surprise audiences by killing off a major star early in the film. Hitchcock killed off Janet Leigh at minute 47 of Psycho. Everyone thought she was the protagonist of the movie, but she wasn't. In the movie Children of Men, Julianne Moore's character dies in the first 28 minutes. In the age of COVID, lots of people are re-watching the 2011 movie Contagion. In that movie, six characters die in the first 12 minutes, one of them being Gwyneth Paltrow, despite her prominent place on the movie poster. Drew Barrymore's character in the movie Scream dies before the opening credits begin. (laughs) Now Eusebius, a Christian historian living in the 300s, gives us a story from James' death that had been handed down from Clement. It's not recorded in the scripture, but it is part of church history. He reports that the one who led James to the judgment seat, when he saw him bearing his testimony, was moved and confessed that he was himself also a Christian. And then he was beheaded alongside the apostle as well. Despite the shock the believers must have felt, we commend the fact that they did not scatter when one of their shepherds was struck down. This church in Jerusalem was no personality cult. They weren't there to see some celebrity. They weren't just there to hear tales of what Jesus was like. These were real Christians. After all, James was merely an under-shepherd, and those that remained continued to fix their eyes on the Lord Jesus. Verse 3 says, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. The way it's written makes makes us think that Herod had begun his murderous campaign sort of on a perverse whim. What should I do today? Why don't I kill some Christians? What could go wrong? But then, after he saw the response from killing James, he saw it winning some points with the right people. History tells us that Herod here, Herod Antipas, he worked hard to keep the Jews happy. They were happy when he killed this church leader, and so he mobilized his efforts to maximize political gain in the next execution. Peter would spend at least a few days in jail, upwards of a week maybe. Herod and the devil were licking their chops But the story setting clues us in that God is about to do something remarkable. Passover, unleavened bread, these were all commemorating how God had delivered Israel from her bonds, saved the people from the death angel, rescuing them in the night. Now Peter had already escaped prison once, back in Acts chapter 5, and he was a miracle worker after all, everybody knew. So Herod wasn't going to take any chances with this prisoner. Guards would be watching Peter on shifts at all times until he could be paraded out before a bloodthirsty mob. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. The situation is bleak, no doubt about it. What we've found is that the church in Jerusalem as a unit doesn't have the sort of logistical strength that it did back in chapters 2 through 7. We remember as we've been tracking through the story Uh, What happened when people had needs back after Acts chapter 2? Well, those needs were immediately met, and and they were able to share all things in common, and it said people didn't have needs because everything was being addressed. We saw feeding programs, and we saw lots of people. We saw lots of things going on. Even after many of the Christians were scouted out of Jerusalem because of Saul of Tarsus, uh, we see there that we're told the apostles, everybody thought well of the apostles. But things have changed between chapter 7 and chapter 12. 
And now what do we see? The people in Jerusalem, the Christians, they're hungry. And during this famine, they're helpless. One of their beloved apostles has just been killed and another was about to be. I'm sure they felt like the very ground beneath their feet was giving way. But here we see an important spiritual reality at work. Even when we are helpless, we have prayer at our disposal, always. They drew up in formation to fight against the wiles of the enemy. Satan had wheeled out his heavy artillery, Herod, and the government. But in response, the Christians armed themselves with corporate prayer. We're told they did so fervently, meaning constantly and with great passion. One descriptor of the word is that they prayed in tension, with tension as if it was a muscle they were flexing and keeping flexed. And they kept flexing it together, asking God to move and to intervene. I don't know if, how long it's been since any of you have done a plank or a wall sit, but keeping that, that, that core flexed for a long period of time, that's kind of the image we're seeing here. We find ourselves in an unstable time. It's hard to predict what tomorrow will bring, but this is the reality revealed by God the Holy Spirit. We have this spiritual muscle prayer, specifically corporate prayer, and we should flex it even when we feel helpless because God is always able and God is always hearing our prayers. Verse six says, when Herod was about to bring him out for trial, that very night, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. I took comfort in something small here. It was such a strange thing that we all had to miss Easter in our regular, normal way this year. Uh, who would have thought? I, back when all this was really getting started, there was, we were, you know, as people were talking, it was like, well, man, what if, what if this was kept going all the way till Easter? It seemed like such a far way away. And now, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't want to say Christmas is in danger, but you never know. <laughs> But you know, we missed that, and it was a bummer. Uh, as a church family, that's always a Sunday filled with joy and expectation and celebration and fun. I mean, it's something we look forward to as a group each year. And I just took comfort, because Peter missed Passover that year. And even though these guys you know, were being led out of the legalism of Judaism, we know they were still culturally Jews. We know that Paul loved to be, he said, hey, I wanna, I'm hoping to get back to Jerusalem for Passover. And it wasn't because he was um, turning his back on Christ or anything like that, but this would have been a big deal for Peter to miss uh, the festival, to miss Passover that year. And I'm sure he was discouraged on some level. But the Lord was still with him and still mindful of him. And we see that he was ruled by peace. Could you sleep with two heavy iron shackles on your wrists and big burly soldiers tied to the other ends? I couldn't. We're in a period of time right now where our little lady, Nora, she's five years old, mysteriously has, I, I had a bad dream every single night right now. And so every night I've got just like a little five-year-old skull just pushing, <laughs> pushing on, on my side in the middle of the night. And uh, so having iron chains and two big scary guys next to me, I, I don't think I'd be able to sleep whether I was sentenced to die or not. But what a great demonstration of godly peace this really is. Obviously, Peter wasn't worried about being executed. That would have kept him awake. But you know, it doesn't seem like he's really resigned to death either. If he was sure he was about to die, wouldn't we expect him to be writing some last minute notes, making, maybe making a few goodbyes? I would. Some commentators suggest that he knew he would be delivered because Jesus had predicted he'd live to an old age. Maybe. But even then, if he knew he was going to be delivered, wouldn't you expect him to stay awake to see the fireworks? Of course you would. 
Instead, this seems to be a perfect representation of the kind of peace that God makes available to his people, one that passes understanding, one that is full of trust in the Lord, whether he delivers or not, whether he gives or takes away, peace ruling the heart and uh, having its full measure in the mind of the believer. Now, as we see Peter's miraculous deliverance, we shouldn't resist the urge to chuckle. Frankly, it reads like a Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis bit, as the angel has to spell out each motion for the groggy apostle who's just not really coming along as quickly as he should. Verse 7 says, Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell, striking Peter on the side. He woke him up, and he said, Quick, get up! And the chains fell off his wrists. There's some interesting angel information here to consider. It's unrealistic for us to think that the guards were also asleep as they were on either a four or six hour shift. So it would seem that all of this was visible to Peter but invisible to everyone else. And we're going to see that they weren't any the wiser through the rest of the night and into the morning. And so obviously there's a a divergence of who could see what when. It's kind of interesting. We also see the angel has power over material objects like shackles and gates without having to touch them. Just some sort of interesting little tidbits about angel stuff. This angel's behavior sort of reinforces the idea that they're, they're a little bit grumpy from our perspective, uh, at least when it comes to dealing with humans. You know, often in movies or shows, movies like City of Angels, shows like that, angels are depicted as being very enamored and fascinated with how we humans do things. Uh, That is not the case when it comes to the biblical record. Uh, Frankly, about half the time, angels just seem a little bit put out to have to talk with the humans at all. When the angel lit up the dark room, Peter didn't wake up. And so the angel gave him a big old whack on the side. Starts to get him up out of his captivity only to be met with persistent sleepiness. Verse 8, get dressed, the angel told him. Put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him. Follow me. So he went out and followed, and he did not know that the angel, that what the angel did was really happening. No, he thought he was seeing a vision, which we should read between the lines that Peter wasn't hustling. (laughs) After they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left them. There are a couple of things I found remarkable here. First, it's an encouragement that sometimes even the apostles were uh, confused about what was going on in their lives. I mean, Peter had even been delivered by an angel from a prison before, but he still wasn't sure what the Lord was doing. Oh, this is kind of familiar. This is kind of a cool vision I'm having right now. Hey, look at that. And the angel the whole time is like, put your clothes on, man. Let's go. Uh, Our part is never to understand everything that the Lord is doing in and around us. How could we? Our part is to trust the Lord and expect him to be moving in our lives and to obey his leading as he leads, whether we fully understand or not. Second, whether you're Peter or the church or Theophilus reading this later, you've got to think, wait, that's it? You took me one block away from the prison and then just left? I'd love a heavenly police escort from here to wherever I need to go so that I'm safe. Uh, Not just out of the prison building, but somewhere secure. But there Peter is on the street corner outside the prison, maybe a block away, bleary-eyed and sort of coming to his senses and realizing that he had indeed been brought out of his cell and made him a fugitive, by the way. Usually guards and soldiers and governments don't look too kindly on those who break out of prison and then are found later on. 
Peter had his own Exodus experience that night, and though he would be pursued like the children of Israel were by Pharaoh, he could rest in the knowledge that he was going with God. You know, we can wish that God would do more uh, in our times of trial or our, our times of struggle, that God would do more to heal or more to deliver or more to defeat our enemies. Lord, why don't you take me the rest of the way that I want to go? But what we should rest on is the fact that God is about his business. He is mindful of our plights and our sufferings. He knows what we need, and he has not deserted us. He is always with us, even to the end of the age. Verse 12, as soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. How did Peter know what house to go to? We don't know, and we have to speculate, but if we're going to speculate, why not? I, th <laughs> I think it's because that's where they had gathered previously to pray, maybe even for James. Now, I've heard Bible studies on this passage that say, obviously, the church had failed. They refused to pray when James was taken by Herod. They didn't take it seriously. They assumed God would let him go. And because of that, James was killed. That if they had only prayed, he would have been saved too, like Peter. Why well, think that? What a terrible thing to think about God's people. If anything, reading between the lines, Peter assumed that there'd be a group ready to receive him at Mary's house. We'll see he's not going to stay long. He needed to get out of Dodge. He stays only long enough to tell them what happened, say, hey, I'm safe, let everybody know, and then he leaves to an undisclosed location. So he went to the one place where he could tell people who were Christians that he was okay, and then he could leave. And so I, I, I choose to think that, you know, he knew that this is where people would be because they had been there before. For believers' part, we see that they were still awake late into the night praying for their friend. They might have done this for days. And it would have been a scary time for them to be gathering together. Remember, it wasn't just apostles being targeted, all sorts of Christians. Yet in faith, they put their lives on the line that they might pray with one another. Verse 13, he knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. In the previous scene, or if the previous scene was closer to slapstick comedy, this is more like the cringy humor of The Office. Where here you have Simon Peter, he's on the run, he's in danger. If he's found out, he's going to be killed, maybe on sight. There's going to be, uh, and there's going to be a drawn-out argument over whether he's actually there at the door pounding away. Little Rhoda gets carried away in the excitement of all, leaves him hanging there. At first, the angel could barely get him out of a cell. Now he can't even get into a house. I just love this because it is a great, candid moment. These were real people, real situations, not scripted, not punched up for TV. If you're Peter, you must be thinking, what in the world is going on tonight? And, you know, we think that a lot, too. Lord, what is going on? Uh, what's going on with this interaction? Oh, what's going on with this situation I find myself in? Verse 15, you're out of your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was true, and they said, it's his angel. Peter, however, kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. What do they mean, it's his angel? That's a weird thing to say. Some people point to the traditional Jewish belief that each person had a guardian angel, and so the guardian angel was showing up for some reason. Others say it meant that it was Peter's spirit, that he must have been executed, and I guess rather than go to heaven, came to visit their weird house. But, but listen, if either of those were really what these people thought, wouldn't they have opened the door for that? 
If you heard, what's that? Oh, it's just the angel outside, leave it be. No, of course you wouldn't say that. You would go and open the doors, check out an angel. Who doesn't want to see that? And so clearly from what they said, you're out of your mind. They don't really think that there is anyone at the door. And so it makes more sense to take the position that they were humoring little Rhoda, just giving her a little there, 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 little Rhoda. It's, you know, it's just his angel. It's okay. But finally, they heard, too heard the pounding, and there before them was the very man they had been praying for God to deliver. Commentators make much out of their lack of faith in prayer. They say they were praying, but clearly they didn't believe. They were surprised to be sure, okay? I mean, no doubt about it. They were surprised. But is it fair to say that these faithful Christians didn't believe that their prayer lacked faith? When's the last time any of us prayed round the clock for God to do something? You know, Luke had assessed them as a fervent and serious group of prayers. Uh, they didn't have some sort of blind prosperity doctrine in the way that they prayed. Lord, we declare that Peter's coming free and so he is. You know, people pray like that right now and there's, you know, some of the most popular churches in the country, that's the mentality that they have. Not about letting martyrs out or, you know, people being persecuted, but Lord, I declare that I have more money and more clothes and things like that. Um, but... You know, this group of Christians, they didn't have that sort of perspective on the situation. That doesn't mean they lacked faith. Um, God had allowed James to die. He had allowed Stephen to die. He had allowed others to be beaten, imprisoned, and killed. It can be hard for us to maintain sureness of faith that God is going to do the miraculous when we pray for big miraculous things, but that doesn't mean that we lack faith, and it doesn't mean that we should stop praying for big miraculous things. It means that we should continue to pray that way and to supplement those prayers with that wonderful line from the Gospels, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But we should also accept the fact that, you know, sometimes the Lord doesn't give the kind of deliverance that we want, and that's okay. In the end, what we want is what God wants. That's really what we want. We may ask the Lord for the miraculous. We may ask the Lord for the certain kind of deliverance or the certain kind of miracle, the certain kind of whatever. But of course, in the end, what we want is what God wants. And sometimes he wants James to be beheaded. We don't understand that all the way, but that's sometimes what he wants. And so we try to balance all of this as we pray. And uh, just let's, keep, let's be done with everybody criticizing uh, these characters in the Bible when the Bible doesn't criticize them. Verse 17 says, motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said, and he left and went to another place. Peter wasn't going to wait, wasn't going to waste time. He knew he was going to need to run for his life and go into hiding. You know, there is no command in Scripture for God's people to categorically refuse to run and hide when persecution is coming. Right? Just because they say, hey, we're, we're going to come and, you know, kill you if you're in Syria or wherever, doesn't mean you have to stay there and wait to be killed. Right? Peter went on the run. There's times when Paul went on the run. Let's get out of here. Right? We've already seen it with Saul. He, they, hey, we're going to kill this guy. What did his disciples do? They put him in a basket, lowered him down, and he hightailed it out of there. And so there's no categorical uh, command that says, hey, no one can hide and, and try to save their life. That's not what Jesus meant when he says those who seek to save their life will lose it. Not at all. Sometimes we see Christians running. Sometimes they do not run. Sometimes Paul was stoned to death. He went back into the town. 
And, and I guess it did, it said, I guess we're going to die. I was thinking uh, today about when him and Barnabas, right before they have their disagreement, he says to Barnabas, hey, let's go back to all these towns where we had planted churches and, and ministered to the people there. And what a strange thing to say. That's not just a short-term missions trip. He's saying, hey, do you want to go take that trip where we almost died and maybe almost die again? Okay, book, book the boats, man. I mean, you, those guys had no guarantee that they were ever coming back from those trips. But so it's just interesting. Peter goes on the run, and that is okay in this situation. Sometimes the Spirit leads one way, sometimes the Spirit does not. For example, that story of the guy who gave his life to Christ and chose to die alongside James. The Spirit led him in that way, apparently. Uh, that was what happened in that situation. He didn't say, I'm a Christian too, and then just start running away. And so we want to give grace in these situations. Now, there are a bunch of James in the New Testament. It seems that this one referenced in verse 17 is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who would later write the New Testament epistle. He had apparently become a leader in the church in Jerusalem. We're going to see him in a big leadership role again in chapter 15. Incidentally, we notice that when James, one of the 12, James, the brother of John, when he was beheaded, he was not replaced the way Judas had been. Now that the church had been well-established and the gospel had gone out, when James died, they retired his number, as it were. His personal apostolic office closed up shop. Uh, now there weren't the 12 anymore, there was the 11. Uh, and there are no genuine apostles operating on the earth today. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. A prison break's always a black eye, but this was an especially bad one for Herod. He decided to go stroke his pride on vacation, but not before meeting out some cruelty on these soldiers. It's unfortunate and distasteful to us, but this was the legal custom at the time. If you were guarding a prisoner and they escaped, you would take the punishment that was meant for that prisoner. This is a sobering reminder to all unbelievers that you do not have tomorrow morning guaranteed to you. Your life may be taken from you. What comfort it is to us to know that Peter had assuredly shared the gospel with these men over the days of his imprisonment. Perhaps as each of them were in turn being led to the block that day, some or all of them called out to Jesus Christ for mercy and would have received it in full measure. I think we'll see some of these guys uh, in paradise. If we were the local church living through this passage, or if we were Theophilus reading it for the first time, we would be shocked at these developments. Once again, the reality was brought home that we are not promised ease or advantage or even survival in this life. These Christians were hard-pressed, hungry. Now they're being hunted. Some were paying with their lives. But what about the miraculous power of God? What about the advance of the gospel? Well, as we read, we see that that was happening too. While suffering was a reality and continues to be, we also see some other realities at work, that God is still just as powerful as he ever was. He is still mindful of his people and their plight. He is still attentive to our prayers. He is able to change even the most dire of circumstances in a moment. But he also allows us to experience his grace and power in the midst of terrific suffering and weakness. When we ask, well, why didn't God save, God, why didn't you save James too? Uh, or substitute that question with, God, why don't you deliver me or my friend or my family member or whatever from this difficulty? In a sense, it's the same sort of question as, 
Lord, will you now establish your kingdom? Lord, let's get to the part where there's no weakness, no suffering, no struggle, no defeat of any kind. That's going to happen. That's coming. But for now, God continues his mission to save. And the reality of that mission is that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. We may feel unstable, helpless, discouraged, but this passage teaches and proves that we have one another for support, that prayer is still powerful, that peace is provided, and that God is in charge. And so let's continue with him, standing resolute with one another in the faith, fearing no evil, for our Lord is with us. 